1: Flushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another edition of Insane in the Membrane.
0: Insane in the
1: Membrane. Uh, and before we begin, I'd just like to say thank you to uh, we've got we've got a couple of supporters for the podcast. We have Dame Theatre. And we have Danny P. They are uh, you, you click on the button for, uh, to support this podcast via Acast. Uh, thank you for that, guys. Really do appreciate it. Also, uh, coming out at exactly the same time as this episode of uh, Membrane, over on Insane in the Fembrain, we have Tracy Cashy. Wonderful Tracy Cashy. She's our guest this week. I met Tracy Cashy um, at, at a gig just before it was just before lockdown when we were all allowed out, and uh, and I just. She was she was doing a spot before me, and I, I, I met her and I just I was immediately struck by her her energy. She's such a positive, incredible woman. Um, and then I got and then I got talking to her, and, it, and she I, I don't know how else to say this. She, it's, it's, her story is incredible. Um, a few years ago, she was diagnosed with uh, with uh, terminal cancer, and and when I when I found that out. After and I found that out after meeting her, and I'm like, it, I was like I said, I was so struck by her positivity, and I just thought I have to talk to this woman. I want to find out how you how you stay so positive in the face of something so so tragic. And so and so um, yeah, I got her on, and, and here's a little clip just to, just to, uh, just for you to have a have a taste.
2: To protect the innocent, there's a lot they don't tell you about life in general and cancer treatment yeah. for sure.
1: Yeah, yeah, otherwise,
2: yeah. Otherwise, we'd all be clutching our crystals and thinking positively.
1: Of course uh, we would. Rather
2: than actually having any treatment.
1: Yeah. Is, yeah. It still, is it still ongoing?
2: Oh, blimey. It's ongoing and it's marching into Poland, um, also known as my oh, liver. Man.
1: Oh, so no. it's,
2: yeah, it's really, it's, 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 um... You know, I'll kill the cancer in the end. You know, when I die, yeah, yeah, we'll both right. die. <laughs> but it will be a, a very phyric victory.
1: <laughs> so search Insane in the Fembrain. Uh, that episode is out right now. It's available on all your podcast platforms. So seek it out. It is a really good listen. So back to Insane in the membrane" with this week's guest, Dr. Shahom Das. Uh, he's a he's a criminal psychiatrist. And uh, I, I, he got in touch and said he wanted to come on and have a chat. And I don't know anything about criminal psychiatry, so I'm like, okay. So I had a look at his stuff. Producer Paul was sending me some links, and, and we had a look, and I was like, oh, I have to talk to this guy, because yes, he's a he's a criminal psychiatrist, he's a doctor, you know, he's a doctor, but he doesn't come, he doesn't talk like that. he's not all starched collars and and stiff upper lip. He's a he's a he's just a, an everyday guy. And we talk about that in the in the, uh, towards the end of the episode. Just he's such an he's just a, a normal guy, and I find that I found that he really easy to talk to, and I wanted to talk to him for hours. So do you know what? Why I don't even know why I'm doing this. Why don't we just listen to the episode? So coming up, Dr. Shahom Das.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus,
1: Thank you for coming on. Um, I I, I apologise. I'm a bit all over the place, to be honest. I've had to I've had to get a day job as well as my comedy and podcasting uh, yeah. because the, the the live stuff has all fallen away. So I'm working in a t-shirt printing shop. Uh, so <laughs> okay. I, I'm just yeah. So I'm a bit all over the place at the minute. I do apologise. How are you finding that? Uh, do you know what? I really like it. They're really good lads. It's SOS Clothing for the people that are listening. Uh, do go online and check out their wares. And it's um. They're really good lads, so it's, it's actually nice to... I'm literally just printing T-shirts and bagging them up. And it's, it's actually... <laughs> I, I, it's nice to be busy, you know? Yeah. Because uh, yeah, I found... You know, because of the lockdown and things like that, I found, you know, you, you get... You, you, when you're left too long with your own thoughts, you can go down some really weird paths. Do you not know, find?
2: It's funny you say that, because I remember when lockdown started, I had all these things that I thought I was going to get, going to get around to do. From like uh, reading books to tidying out my garage to all these papers that I should know about psychiatry that I haven't read for years. Yeah. And I thought, now I've got all this time, I'm going to do it. And actually, it w- wasn't like that at all. I just found out that I was I was really sort of grumpy and bored and miserable. that I actually need to keep busy to keep sane. I can't not do anything. Yeah.
1: You're ex- I'm exactly the same. I didn't realise, because I was always getting ready for the next gig. So I didn't feel bad about sort of not doing much during the day because all my stuff happens at night so I was always preparing for the next thing and thinking about comedy and and then the doing the podcast so I always had something and then within 20 minutes it had all been taken away when everything got locked down and suddenly yeah. you're just I was strangely zen at the beginning and like you I was kind of like I've got plenty of books to read I've got this and that but your brain just just like, it just all sort, of, sort of stopped and I was just <laughs> like I just don't have the energy to do any of it I don't I think it was the not knowing what the future was hold, was to hold for us all. I think that kind of put a block on me.
2: Also, I think I think I'd fooled myself into thinking that I didn't do those things because I didn't have enough time, whereas actually I just I never wanted to do them, and I just pretended <laughs> that I didn't have enough time. You're so you're so right. You
1: kind of yeah, yeah I I almost got like a dopamine hit from telling myself I was just too busy to read that particular book or download that particular thing or whatever and yeah like you're right it was just like I just didn't want to (laughs) man but you're you're a criminal psychiatrist is that right amongst many other things
2: uh yeah yeah so forensic psychiatrist so I assess and rehabilitate people who've got serious mental illnesses who have either on trial during the court process or afterwards when they come into a, a psychiatric hospital. Yeah.
1: Like, because I, I saw I was watching a video of you on your uh, podcast and you were saying about um, they, it's well otherwise known as criminally insane. Is that right? Yeah,
2: that's I what, think that's, what that's probably the tabloid, what the tabloids, the tabloids would say. call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah or move, the
1: <laughs> movies kind of call it that, don't they, to make it sound. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Yeah, make it sound exotic.
2: I wouldn't be allowed to use that terminology. No, you'd get. <laughs> Sounds very cartoony, doesn't it? It's very, yeah. <laughs> Mentally disordered offenders is, is what uh, what the official term is within the professional,
1: and it's it's people that see would these people be criminals anyway? Like do you know I me? Mean? Because I know because I know people that they do. I've known people in the past that have been up to no good, but they're not. Yeah. They're, they don't. It's not a mental illness. It's just they're they're just a bit dodgy. But this yeah. uh, this uh, is this a, so this is a this is a, um, If you could you explain. What that what it sure. is sure
2: uh, i'm happy to so it's basically it's, it's a it's a big range of people so on one extreme end i occasionally not that often but i occasionally see people who are absolutely not career criminals have no kind of criminal history so we we get sent with their case papers we get their uh, police c- computer national record reports, so we can see their previous offenses so occasionally we get people who have never committed a crime never uh, stepped a foot out of line then they become completely psychotic Uh, Usually because they've got a family history of schizophrenia, for example, and they do something Mm. horrific. So I've seen uh, a case that immediately springs to mind as I once assessed this uh, 18 year old schoolgirl who became psychotic and and killed her niece when she was completely delusional, had no idea what she was doing. Uh, Obviously, that's a really tragic case. Um, And Mm. my kind of role is is to decide whether she can have like a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity and whether she should go to prison or hospital. So obviously in a case like this, she should go to hospital. So that's kind of one Mm. extreme. The other extreme is you get people who are habitual criminals who have like, for example, antisocial personality disorder. Um, Don't know if you've heard of that, Mm. but it's like a a flaw in your personality where you're constantly uh, arguing with people. You're kind of aggressive, hostile. You, You don't care about right and wrong. Um, you you're very manipulative and these people are, are natural um, criminals and the vast majority of them don't need our services but occasionally they get severe depression or psychosis um, so they're people who probably would have offended anyway to answer your original question okay. but during the period of time that they're unwell we have to get them better
1: See, this is this such there's so many layers to all of this it's, it's I find it, it, I had a conversation with somebody yesterday we were talking about the subconscious and you, your like decisions are being made that you don't even realize are being made like in your own subconscious which is i find fantastic you know i find i find oh, this is why i wanted to talk to you because i don't i don't know anything about this but i want to know and that's why yeah. when you when you when you when, you, when you, i was like yes let's have a chat so <laughs> i don't know anything and i want to know i want to know more you know so okay. just give give us what you got
2: what got you into
1: this how did you start
2: um so i um i wish i had like a really uh, inspirational tale of how i wanted to be a psychiatrist since i was a kid but actually i got into psychiatry in a very kind of disorganized slightly random sloppy manner so i went to medical school so you have to be a doctor first
1: as as, as people do
2: <laughs> i had nothing better to do at the time yeah <laughs> um, and so psychiatrists are all doctors first and then you specialize in psychiatry as your specialism as opposed to being a GP or as opposed to being a surgeon. Psychologists, and people get us mixed up all the time, uh, only study Mm. psychology and they only sort of work with talking therapy. So I went to medical school and I just, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had no plan it was just all one big sort of party blur for me for five years. And then at the end of it, I, mm. I just suddenly realised that this is actually really serious. I need to pick a career path. Yeah, do something. Um, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I just, I just remember that when I was a medical student, the, psych- the psychiatrists that I work with were just cool people. They were really friendly, really welcoming they didn't treat me like shit like a lot of surgeons did yeah Um, yeah yeah right and so I just I just did it for that reason really for the wrong reasons but then once I got into it I just kind of realized that I had an affinity to talk with uh, mentally unwell people whether they were really depressed and you know on suicide watch or whether they were floridly psychotic I just was able to do that I was able to make them feel comfortable and chat to them so that's kind of how I got into psychiatry and then Within psychiatry, there's all these little uh, subspecialties. So there's, for example, you know, drug and alcohol psychiatry, old age, child and adolescent, and forensics is one of them. And actually, I knew very little about it when I first started psychiatry because it's kind of a slightly dark, closed world. So, for example, forensic really? psychiatric units are behind several locked doors and you have to have your like, thumbprint scanned into it. You can't just walk onto a forensic psychiatric ward. Uh, and I just fell in love with it immediately. I think I'm just kind of interested in criminology. Uh, you know, in my spare time, I, I listen to true crime podcasts. Um, so I just like the the sort of the fascinating story that all my patients have.
1: There is something about it, that, that what you know, thinking of what makes a person do certain things. You know, and, yeah. and it, I always find I find that fascinating. I think we all do. There's a lot of podcasts that, about serial killers and things like that. And yeah. because people are fascinated with it, you know,
2: they are, especially on Netflix. It's like every every week or two, there seems to be a new series or documentary <laughs> about serial killers.
1: But I know we can There's so much of it. You get to a point you kind of forget about the other side of it where like people have lost people have lost loved ones to these people. Yeah. Yet we we're, we're all we we're, we're all sort of fascinated with the people that with the perpetrators. You know, and it and it, you kind of start to separate it from it. You know it's a horrendous thing, but because you've just what you've yeah. seen so much of it, you kind of start to separate it from well you just don't you don't think about what they've actually done really. It, it kind of you kind of loses that that sort of sense of like I say people have lost loved ones. And yeah. I can't imagine what, what it must be like for the people that see these, these things that have actually lost loved ones to serial killers and, or, or family members or whatever, and it must be horrendous for them.
2: Absolutely. I yeah. think the other thing that people don't really necessarily acknowledge or don't want to acknowledge is that most of the time the perpetrators who commit these horrific kind of offences are or were victims themselves. So with the exception oh, right, okay. of, of people who've become completely psychotic out of the blue and there was no background, which does happen, but it's rare. Most of the patients that I see, almost all of them have some kind of horrific background. So whether it's domestic abuse, uh, just no parental guidance since they were kids, to poverty, to drug use, almost none of them, um, it, it, almost none of them have a normal sort of construct uh, mm. well-structured life it comes from somewhere
1: and some people you know, it's funny isn't it because it all comes down to the individual doesn't it that in their in their makeup that because some some people they say take two people they've, they've both had horrendous things happen to them at a very young age but not everybody yeah. goes off to become they don't always go off and 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 re-offend or offend themselves or become criminals or things like that so it's 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 fascinating isn't it that that because i know people that have had horrendous things happen to them as kids but they're now they they've kind of they don't let it define who they are and they kind of own it they go yeah that happened to me that was a thing but i don't i've dealt with that now and now i've got this life and this is what i want to do it's a funny thing isn't it that yeah i mean you must have looked into this yourself you know
2: uh yeah so the the people i see generally have all of those things you're talking about but a mental illness on top so uh they've they've already got these really harsh backgrounds and they're w- already kind of embroiled in the criminal underworld and then on top of that they start hearing voices or they start getting these paranoid delusions um so i think that's that's a, for the patients that i see that's probably the biggest factor is active so symptoms of mental illness as well as their backgrounds
1: and and you say it's sort of hered- a lot some of it's hereditary
2: yeah absolutely so uh, most Uh, of the mental illnesses or the the key ones, um, the the psychotic ones, so schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, most of them run in families. But it's it's a very kind of complex mix of genes. So just because your parents or another first-degree relative has it doesn't mean you will get it. It just means that you're kind of predisposed to it. Mm -hmm. And then there are certain triggers. So drug use is a big trigger. Uh, just trauma is another massive trigger so you're already predisposed to it and then two or three key things happen and then it just flips you into like these periods of of hearing voices or having delusions or being manic i've i've seen i've i said this before to someone we're having a conversation
1: and we you see people that are like walking along the street and they're like they, they're arguing with themselves and or they're arguing yeah. with someone they can obviously see and it's always fascinating me like how comes this they don't have there's no they don't you don't seem to imagine like good friends or someone that's nice. It always seems to be aggressive, and 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 do you know what I mean? And it and it, it fascinates me that it's not someone that goes. Do you want to go around the shops? Should we go and have a wander around the park? And it's like, yeah, yeah, let's go and do that. It's always like, yeah, kill your neighbour, which I find. What, I mean is that is that because we are sort of because human beings kind of err on the side of uh, negativity in order to survive. That's our kind of survival mechanism. Or
2: there is, there were one or two cases that I remember in my in my career where I've met people with a chronic psychosis like schizophrenia who actually connect with their voices and find them comforting Uh, it's very it's it's rare it's it's in a Mm. small minority but the vast majority do have uh yeah they have hostile voices that are telling them to harm themselves or to harm other people and i think that is because their their um, sort of natural psyche is quite negative and hostile and i think again that's connected to uh to the upbringing they've had so they've it's it, it, either they di- they directly hear the voice of their abusive father or stepfather or they kind of transfer it onto a, a um, like an imaginary being of, of the voice they hear but I'll, t- I'll take something interesting so i was in um, new york last year on a, just on a family holiday last april and uh, i could not believe the number of people who were just walking around who were clearly psychotic talking to themselves really uh, it was it was like literally every street corner had one yeah I mean, you, you get a few of them in London. If you if you walk through Central London, you might see maybe one or two on yeah, your average day. Yeah. In New York, they were everywhere. And it, yeah. Um, have you been to New
1: York? I have. I have. It's it was quite full on. I've been a couple of times, and you kind of you, you can kind of see why because you you don't really see now and again you'll see somebody out of a city and they're and and they're wandering around sort of talking to to somebody. But it seems to be more more prevalent in cities. Do you think that's because of the pressure of a city? Yeah. Because I know cities tend to be unforgiving, don't they? You kind of, they don't care whether you can keep up with it or not. It's like, you're in the city, this is how we do it, you know, and you either keep up or you fuck off, you know, and it, do you know what (laughs) I mean? Yeah, that's what it seems to be. That's how it feels like when I'm there.
2: I think you're right. I think that... uh... I can't quote you any studies off the top of my head, but I'm sure I've I've read studies about how the incident of mental illness is higher in cities. And I think it's because um, you generally get sort of poverty, immigration and deprivation within cities more than you would do Mm. in like your home counties. And also I think a big factor is the lack of psychiatric services. So if you look at like a place in London, so uh, to give you a a solid example, in the forensic psychiatric units where I I, uh, send some people from court, in London, there's always a humongous waiting list, so you're always waiting wow. uh, weeks, if not months, to get somebody in who's clearly psychotic. Sometimes in the community, sometimes they're in prison, um, only because th- there's just so many people and so few beds. Whereas yeah. out in sticks, out in the country, it's the opposite. They're like they're they're looking for patients to fill the beds because they you know they've got oh, all wow. these resources and need to fill them.
1: Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think everybody it, we it, there's that there's still that old fashioned view of go to the city. There'll be opportunities there, do you know what I mean? And it's and it's and nine times out of ten, there's, there's not. In fact, there's too many of you, and there's no opportunities. You should come out a little bit. But do, can you tell if someone's putting it on or not? Like if they're if they're pretending that there's something wrong, and they just but they've just done a horrible thing, <laughs> and they're trying and they're just trying to get away with it. Yeah, So they have a tell? Question. Can you sort? Of, uh, yeah, can you sort of tell?
2: They do have a tell. Um, so. The biggest uh, the biggest giveaway is not actually when you see that person, uh, when you see them in person face to face. The biggest giveaway is getting their history. So when I see a defendant for the first time, the first thing I do is I try and get all of their background medical notes, if they've got psychiatry notes, if they've got general practice notes, and I, I get a hold of them. And it's not impossible, but it is really suspicious if somebody's not got a history of mental illness or of being psychotic right. or unwell and then suddenly conveniently when they've committed a crime they're saying that they're unwell it's not impossible but it's really unlikely because psychosis and, and other mental illnesses they're chronic they don't sort of they don't just suddenly appear out of the blue they can but it's very rare very small portion of cases yeah, so yeah, yeah. that that's the first thing that raises my suspicion you know you're saying that you're, you've been you've been hearing voices for three years but you've not once spoken to your gp about it so that's the first oh, thing right. then the second thing yeah. would be to look at the evidence in the case papers so we are. Uh, almost always sent witness statements. So that will be, say for example, somebody stabbed stabbed a neighbor, for example, that's a relatively common presentation. So I get the witness statements for all, all the neighbors, including the victim. And again, I'm looking for signs that somebody has been off or paranoid or shutting themselves in or muttering to themselves or saying bizarre things mm. for the weeks and months that have led up to the offense. And then you look at the actual um, evidence of what happened on the day. So witness statements to the event, and then when the police arrested the person. So some, occasionally I get cases where the police has arrested the perpetrator and they're, you know, um, walking around half naked, muttering to themselves, they're not making any sense, they're really agitated all of this suggests that actually, yeah, fair enough, they are mentally ill. So mm. um, the the past history is the biggest kind of giveaway. And then when you actually see them face to face, to answer your question, yeah, I, I think you can tell. And you can tell because of this, because people who are truly psychotic don't want to, or have an agenda to convince you that they're psychotic, right? So mm. if you're actually hearing voices and you're actually paranoid, and I'm this doctor that comes in in nice suit and you've never met me before, you're not gonna open up and just tell me all the things that you're feeling suspicious or paranoid about, no. you're, you're gonna be the opposite of that. You're gonna be sort of closed down, you're gonna be reserved, you're not gonna be making eye contact, you might you might be sort of looking around a bit shiftily. Whereas the people who are trying to convince me that they're mentally unwell and need to go to hospital are the opposite of that. So within seconds they're like, ah, oh, doctor, I can hear these voices, did you hear that? You know, <laughs> why is that person <laughs> looking <laughs> through the room? And it's actually very yeah. obvious, very obvious. And also you develop a bullshit radar, <laughs> just you, I was going to say you've been doing it been, time,
1: yeah. I was going to say you've been doing it long enough that you can go yeah. come on for fuck's sake Who you really is that the best you can do come on
2: I mean you've got you've got kids right yes I do yeah and you must have, you must have developed a bullshit radar for them right you, can, you must be able to tell
1: when <laughs> <Yeah>. they're <laughs> telling the truth yeah yeah oh, absolutely yeah. absolutely I tell you what though I I've got I've developed my own bullshit radar because I used to be full of it I remember years ago <laughs> I just be I was a bit I was a, i've said this many times on here i i'd i'd kind of sort of ricocheted through life and getting into trouble in relationships and things like that and you know i wasn't being truthful truthful to anybody to anyone around me to myself there's just this idiot that was bumbling around and then i went and had counseling and i sorted myself out and now i am the king of honesty i just i get i get such a rush and being honest and people telling me that I'm trustworthy and, and loyal and all these sorts of things. I love it. So, but now because of, because I hear, I straight away I can hear, I know when someone's telling me lies because I've told the lies.
2: If you don't mind me asking, if it's not too personal, yes. what was that about then? What was your, what was your previous? Just, yeah, I'm psychoanalyzing, you now. I should be charging you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I just, well, uh, I don't really know. I don't really know it, it they, the, well, the the the, uh, the the counselor that i had he said i i was addicted to the to the to the rush at the beginning of a relationship yeah so i'd i'd meet someone i'd go oh this is amazing and they were always the one and i'd fling myself into that relationship and then uh i wasn't honest enough later on to go oh actually i'm not feeling this now yeah and i'd end up i'd meet somebody else but then i hadn't told the other person and then I'd end up in this, I'd have like a couple of people at the same time and I was lying to everybody because I didn't know, I wasn't honest, honest, honest enough to say, look, I can't do this anymore. I've met this person. Yeah. And it was just, a, and I kept, but I kept doing it. And in the end, I just, I just, I just had enough. I'm like, why am I doing this? I'm not, I, I knew deep down I was a better person than that. Yeah, I knew I was a, I knew I was a decent man, and I, and so having counselling helped me to find that decent person.
2: And do you, do you think do you think that would have that would have come out anyway out of maturity and with age, or do you think you needed the counselling to to really bring that out? I
1: needed, a, I think it would have done eventually, but I needed I needed help with it then because it was just so destructive, and and I always felt I wasn't good enough for people as well. There was that I had insecurities and. I just thought you know, why would anyone love this? and oh, I was a whole mess, and then drinking too much and drugs and things like that, and just 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 out and out carnage yeah. that I did need someone to kind of take me to one side and I go, right, sit down let's let's listen, let's have a chat but it, like it's, but, yeah, as 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 I've become older as well you kind of realize a few things as well so yeah i become when you're when you're mature you do realize a, a few things
2: but good on you for actually going for the counseling right because yeah. uh, i'm sure there's a lot of people that have have had the similar kind of emotions and thoughts and issues that you've had but the vast majority wouldn't actually take that step no. because that's admitting that something's wrong in the first place right
1: it's yeah you, you kind of feel that you're you're not it's, it's it's you're not masculine enough you know because you're you should be a man about these things and you you, you know you you push that shit down and you don't you don't get you're, you're a strong man you don't need to you, there's nothing wrong with you you just pull your pull your socks up and that's that sort of shit, and that's why there's so many men of, you know, now of my generation that are so emotionally stunted, yeah, and woefully unhappy. And I think talking about, I, I, you know, having, you know, go on, go on.
2: I was just going to say, I do think it is it is gradually changing. It's a very small change, but it is, I think yes. so. I'm 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 41. I'm not young. I'm not old either. But I, I'm sure, like if I remember correctly, about 20 years ago, people wouldn't have come out as easily with uh, being honest about having mental health problems it's not something that you would speak about openly to your work colleagues or you know going to see a counsellor was was very rare back then no not at all um yeah so it's a good thing it's changing i
1: think oh absolutely i mean I've, I, we've talked about this before is that yes we we it's yeah it's changing and it is and people are starting to open up a bit more so we might not be the generation that actually really properly benefits from it but the next generation will They'll be the ones that, do you know what I mean? Because our generation, I know my dad was very, very emotionally shut down, and that caused yeah. a lot of anger and frustration. And now, I mean, he's a lot more open now because I kind of prized it out of him. you know, I tell him I love him all the time, and I hug him, and even though it drives him insane but that's <laughs> but even then, if you'd have used the words "mental health" twenty years ago, it would have just been assumed yeah. that you were you were mentally ill rather than it yeah. being a, a thing of you actually the brain is something that you need to take care of you know and listen yeah. to like take it that's, that's that's that yes, yeah, so you're absolutely right. We are making those changes and it's it's happening, yeah.
2: I think the other thing that's changed also is celebrities talking about their mental health.
1: Absolutely, So yeah.
2: that, if I remember correctly, when that first started happening, um, in, especially in the media, which I think, again, was probably around 20 years ago, I think they were kind of vilified and you get tabloids that would have all these headlines about people taking overdoses and um was it lily allen just one that sticks in my head and just the way that they were portrayed Mm. were was was really cruel and i think that it's the opposite now they're kind of applauded and the thing is right i think that's a good thing i definitely think that's a good thing but at the same time it also potentially marginalizes people with serious mental illnesses so you hear the story of the celebrity who had a bit of anxiety and had a bit of depression and they overcame it and they. Uh, went on to have a sparkling career. And that's a good story. I don't mean to denigrate that. But mm. what about the people who, the people that I see, so people with really serious mental illnesses who spend most of their lives in hospital, you don't really get your celebrity that's got that story. So I think there's a risk that it actually marginalises more the people with more severe mental illnesses.
1: No, you're absolutely right. I've, again, I've had many conversations like this. It's because everybody at the moment has got a thing. Everyone's got a thing. It's and it's and, and like you say, yes, I am. I, yeah, you'd be you'd have to be an absolute psychopath to not be affected by the world, the way the world is. But there are, there, like you say, there are people that have got really, really ferocious mental illnesses but because they're so because they're so ferocious they're, it's very difficult to deal with people they just kind of get pushed to the side don't they and and yeah. it, it seems to be anyway like things that actually need to be helped. and and funding for these people like it, there's cuts left right and center that must be so frustrating for you when you're trying to help yeah. these people and the and the and the, the resources aren't there
2: absolutely so within the world of psychiatry over the last couple of decades there's been a massive shrinkage of hospital inpatient beds uh, because the government wants to treat people in the community. And I think, in theory, that's a really good thing because you're giving people more freedom, more autonomy, but it doesn't really help the people who are too unwell to cope in the community. And because there's so few hospital beds now, the threshold mm. to actually be sort of sectioned or go in uh, under the Mental Health Act is so much higher. Even in my career, I've, I've, the kind of people that I uh would assess and would have admitted when i first started in psychiatry uh, half of them i wouldn't even be able to get into hospital now there's just not enough spaces in the bed so they're just struggling to cope uh, in the community it's really sad
1: yeah well it's it's like in the in the movie joker which I know was a movie, but there was a there's a bit in it when <clears throat> like he gets his meds, he has to go and see a go and see a woman every 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 week or whenever it was. And yeah. you know, and he's got his diary and he's talking to her and, and then one day she says, Look, they've cut the funding, you're there is a, this isn't happening anymore. You're gonna have to yeah. figure something out and he's like, Well, what about my meds and things? And I'm like, well, I don't really know. And it and yes, that was a movie, but that's actually happening in the in the real world and it's horrifying. Yeah. That's it. And what happens to these people? What do they do? they just get left?
2: Um, that's a great movie, by the way. As a as a little side note, I actually movie. wrote an article about um, about psychoanalyzing the Joker and, and sort of doing a full psychiatric assessment on him. I'll send you a link if you're interested after this chat. Did you really? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Fantastic, fantastic. But it's I I, I yeah, it's one of my favourite movies because it was so it was so real, and I really, really, I just, I, I really, I really that that particular bit really struck me. Because it was like, I'm like, yeah, that's actually happening. And it there are actually people out there that have been, they're relying on that, just that one meeting every couple of weeks. That's their yeah. one kind of, they're the last thread that's helping them stay attached to the world. And then yeah. it gets cut. And then what yeah. happens? They just get left. And they just, yeah. they just get, hopefully they'll just fizzle out and die or, which is hot, which is just awful.
2: It is awful. And actually, I, I see these people through the criminal justice system. So 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they would have got the help when they needed it. They'd have got into hospital earlier on that have been treated and they would have at least started their journey to recovery. But what's happening now is that because there's less resources and because you have to be, the, the threshold for you to be admitted is so much higher, they kind of, um, they're just sort of pottering around in the community and then Uh, A lot of them eventually go on to commit petty crimes, whether it's kind of lashing out due to paranoia, hearing voices or whether it's, you know, shoplifting because they literally can't afford food. And then we see those kind of low level offenders coming in through the courts. And so that's definitely changed in the last five, 10 years.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that. But that's a lot of the because society tells you, you have to you live if you live a certain way. You you know you 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 you're a, you're a good you're a decent citizen you know you've you've got a great credit record which means you can borrow as you can borrow loads of money and that makes you a decent citizen and you know in, but 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 some people just are just pushed to a place where they have to commit a crime in order to survive like you say a very low level shoplifting or they'll steal something because they're just so desperate but they're just yeah. because it's because the criminal system is the way it is everybody gets treated the same way and it's like there doesn't some I don't know I know I got in trouble a few years ago I was out with my with my now ex-wife and we got into a bit of a scuffle with these fellas and one of them called her a, a fat a fat cunt and I had lost yeah. my temper we'd all there was a lot of pressure we were we were breaking up and it was and I lost my temper and I punched this fella and I got in trouble yeah. and rightly so I shouldn't have punched him but I lost my temper but they but there was I saw a woman and she sort of assessed me to see if I was a danger to to the to society and things like that. And and even she like you yeah. said earlier, she started, she checked my record and she went, "You've never been in trouble with anything. You've no, there's nothing happened. But now this and what what is it?" And I just and I just told her the story. She went, "Yeah, I she goes, yeah. That's, I suppose yeah. It all gets too much for some people." But it's but then but then they're, now they're in the system and then it kind of it kind of rolls, doesn't it? With for a lot. Of, I was lucky. It kind of I recognised what I'd done. I'm like, no, it was just a moment in time. I won't do that again.
2: So, did, what happened in the end? Did you did you get did you get charged or? I got charged with
1: assault, and I got done for. Uh, I got yeah, got done for assault, and I did 150 hours community service. And I got a fine. And I I genuinely felt bad. I didn't, it's not, I'm not proud of it. This isn't me going, oh, check me out. I genuinely was, it was a moment in time that it was like, it was was really rock bottom. That's when the counselling started as well. All that kind of triggered me. It was like, that was my life. That was like, come on, man, this is ridiculous now. And how did you
2: find the community service?
1: Oh man, what an eye opener that is. Meeting other people, like young lads, young, young, young lads that are the way they were talking, were just they're just in the system. They're in. They are. They are criminals. They're just. That's just their way of life. They just. Yeah. They just don't. They've never had any other opportunities. So, they just go. Well, look. This is what my dad did. This is what I do. And it, this is just what we do. And yeah. it. It was. It was a real eye opener. And it really made me. It made me recognize my privilege for sure. That I. You know. I've been lucky that I've not. You know, I've not. This that's not been my 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 experience at all. You yeah. know, so I'm, I kind of I was grateful to see it, and it made me realise it made me realise a, a lot about my own life. But and it made it made me realise I never want to do litter picking on the Broadwater Farm Estate again. So there's a good deterrent then. God, not half. That'll that'll that'll, <laughs> that'll learn you. Don't do that, <laughs> but that. But I was lucky. I had people around me that kind of that helped me and 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 you know brought me back out and. And, and I've done my best to be a better person, but some people just get caught in the system, don't they? And they don't yeah. see any other way. And, and then they just get lost, don't they? Just get They get cut off and lost. And I don't know what the answer is. Is it more funding?
2: Oh, the answer is definitely more funding. I think that's the answer to, to most socio, mm. um, social problems. But it's also about how it's spent as well. Because I'm not always convinced that, that the system always works in a particularly efficient way. So I'll, I'll give you an example, no. in, in court diversion where I work, we pick out the defendants that need to go to hospital. And one of my biggest bugbears is that the actual process of, of sectioning somebody under the Mental Health Act is really slow and clunky. So if I, I, as the doctor that works in the court, I can give one opinion and then they have to get out like a, a senior social worker from the borough who's always got a backlog of cases and a, and a second independent doctor. And to do all of that together in one day and do the assessment um, is almost impossible. And then if you don't manage to do it before the court shuts, which is about four or five, then they get remanded in prison mm. overnight. Um, and loads and loads of funding was kind of put into this system, but I think it was put into the wrong places. So it didn't kind of it didn't make the it, it, there was just too many managers that were thrown in. And too many sort of voices yeah. and nothing that actually sorted out the protocols. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's not just money. It's also like using it in an effective way. Where it
1: goes. Yeah. It just feels like the whole system needs to be re- 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 re-jigged, re-evaluated. Re- re- but I don't know. But it's so... Yeah, like you say, there's so many different parts, aren't there? There's, you know, it's... Said, I, I, don't, I don't. I mean, I don't know. I'm just talking from a, of an, out, an outsider's point of view. I'm not in. My dad works for Citizens Advice Bureau, and on that level, he just finds it so frustrating that yeah. you know he gets people coming to him with they're just desperate, and he can only do so much because there's so much bureaucracy in front of him. Yeah. You know, there's so much bullshit, and you've got to talk to more than one person, and and you've got to wait for letters to come back and forth, and it just seems to be. There must be a better way to do it, yeah, you know
2: that's what what you're talking about sounds really familiar within the mental health system as well. It's all very kind of fractured and disjointed, so there's like uh, a team like that that I work in in the courts, and then there's another psychiatric team in the prisons, and then there's like the probation service who also make decisions on whether um, people are safe enough to to be on bail or not, and then you've got a community team who also has responsibility for the patient, but then if they've committed their offence in a different borough, then that community team no longer gets involved, so another community team gets involved. And it just feels like too many too many cooks, really. There's just, like you say, there's too many Far people too involved, many. and and the, the answer isn't throwing more money and getting more people in. <laughs> the answer is just to simplify no, God the no. system and make it run smooth.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's what it, te- but it's, yeah, it just needs, just completely taken apart and, and, and just, yeah, just, we need to be given a shit about actual people. They just they just become figures, numbers on a screen, don't they? Yeah, you know, and it's and then when you see when you see, you, you, when you see they, they give the figures out and they go, oh, crimes crimes up in this area or it's down in that area, and you know, you are not really you are not really dealing with anything. You are not really you are not really you know. I, I don't know. I see. I went when that's what I did see in Tottenham was on that estate. You just saw you just saw people with nothing. That that estate in particular, they were ju- these people just said nothing, and they and you know they were like, well, why should I? why should I give a shit about these? No one gives a fuck about me. Yeah. So why should I give a fuck? And it these people are just with nothing, so they do they, they get into drugs or they do whatever. And it was really interesting to see. And I but again, I don't know what the answer is with that. What do you do? You can't. What did do you, do you inject money into the community? Do you? Because I don't know how many of these kids are going to want to table tennis table <laughs> i don't think yeah. that really works is it anymore youth club
2: yeah i, I don't think i i, I mean I, I suppose when you when you're looking at the the harsher boroughs and the the kind of slightly ghettoized boroughs in london then it is really hard to come up with a solution but then i think there are there are some sort of areas that work well like you have these youth football teams okay uh, that tend to flourish you get sort of like you know these little dj sets and people that that can make um like underground music they tend to Keep a few kids off the street. I think it's just tailoring oh, it to what cool. the kids want to do, rather than yes, what the counsellors think the kids want to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ping pong is not the answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're right, man. That is it because they do because these kids they do want to be DJs and they do want to be they want to do they want to do they want to be more creative. I've, I did I found that a lot. People they do want to get into music. And my oldest son is a dancer. Yeah, and he does choreography and he gets people. He gets a lot of you know people in yeah that, that's what they want to do they want to be creatives and i think yeah like that's where you You know what you're right that's where we should be focusing i think you know like you say do what the kids want to do rather than what some pompous old twat in his 60s thinks is the right thing for the you youth.
2: you know what rich i think we sorted out i think you and, think I, you you and
1: I should well, let's form a let's form a <laughs> we'll be like the batman Party. and robin of yeah yeah you could be <laughs> batman and i'll i'll be i'll be your sidekick I think I think that's the way forward. <laughs> but it must be you must you must enjoy what you do like figuring people out. I know I enjoy it on just 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 I I love working people out. I love people tell you more about themselves than they actually than just speaking, don't they? And I love that. Yeah. Yeah, I love body language. I watch videos about body language all the time. I love that. You must love that.
2: I do. So for for the average assessment that I do, I probably spend about an hour with the actual client, whether that's a defendant in, in like prison or in hospital. And I spend probably about 10 or 11 hours actually writing up the report. So it, it is interesting and I do enjoy it, but it's less, it's less glamorous than you think it is because the actual bit where you figure the person out, which is, I agree with you, the most interesting bit, is the conclusion. It's almost like you have to show your work. So when I write oh, a court yeah. report for a judge, I have to come up with a conclusion like they have this mental illness and this is the evidence of these symptoms and uh, this is what his mental state was like at the time but it has to be absolutely watertight and the reason Mm. for that is because um, like if I do a report for the defence then the Crown Prosecution Service if they don't like what I've written that they can call their own psychiatrist and then we sort of battle Ah. out in court Uh, or vice versa sometimes in the cases for the the Crown Prosecution Service as well Uh, and so to kind of to preempt their strikes you have to go through all of the all of the notes and pick out every single piece of information in detail and cluster them together into symptoms and diagnoses so i guess what i'm trying to say is it is fun the final bit the conclusion is fun but the actual mm. going through the the pages of evidence can can be a little bit dull at times
1: oh god oh well yeah i can you imagine and then it and like you say it, you've it's got to be so meticulous and watertight you it, 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 i mean how is your how is your own mental health with this do you have do you do you do you have things that you do to protect yourself because sometimes it must if this is is do you do you, are you do you find it easy to kind of put it to one side and go off and do things like relax and, and and have some some kind of social life
2: yeah i i do um and i don't really know why i don't think it's something that i learnt i think i've just always managed to disconnect so some of the perpetrators have done horrible things from like you know sexual crimes to pedophilia Um, but as i said earlier on they're also a lot of them are also victims themselves but Mm. and it's not that it doesn't bother me it's not not like i don't care i do but i'm also just very able to compartmentalize what is work and not take it home so occasionally i'll tell my wife about cases that i've seen and she's like horrified about what's actually happened and what the person's done and i am much more interested in the psychiatric defense than i am about the kind of morality of what they what they did Um, Mm. and i I honestly don't know why i'm just i'm just possibly borderline psychopath i just i just can it doesn't bother (laughs) me it doesn't affect doesn't affect you know what my life and i think another thing is that i i uh i always keep really busy i've got so many other things in my life Uh, i've got my wife and kids i've just started a new podcast recently Dabbled in stand up as you know Um, and i think because i've got so many other things i'm too Busy to get kind of bogged down by seeing people that have done horrific things. I don't really have time to to kind of concentrate on the fact that somebody no. you know severely beat up their spouse because mm-hmm. by if I, by the time I think about it, another case has come along and then another podcast. Yeah, episode yeah, comes yeah, along. yeah. Just, keep just it busy. Yeah,
1: up. well, I think that that you know what that's you're so right. Like I said at the beginning, it's that it's when when the lockdown happened and I was left alone with my own thoughts. That's when it. That's when it started to get weird, and that and I saw that as well. People kept, kept putting on Twitter and things like that, talking about how vivid and mad their dreams were, and it. And I read a thing in uh, the National uh, National Geographic, and it said because you've had all the all the distractions of everyday life have been taken away from you, your brain yeah. is now process, It's just sort of left to its own device, and it's processing everything. So it was just chucking out all these mad stories in your head. In dreams were incredible. <laughs> they were nuts. And it, and it, yeah, you're right. You keep busy, but I that's, that's what makes you good at what you do. You, you, you do, it doesn't. It's not because you don't. You're not. You know. You like you say. You're not. You're not a psychopath. You're just able to go. Well, that it's just. I can't. It doesn't affect me because it's just. A, it's just. It just doesn't. You know. And that's. And that's good because yeah. I know. You know. I used to work in an old people's home, and it, that I used to take that home with me. I think more yeah. of like the, you kind of go, oh, that's I, that's probably where we'll all end up, and it made me a bit made me a bit morbid to be honest. So you used to think about but, it outside yeah. of work. Yeah, I'd be like, oh God, these poor people in these homes, and it used to. I mean, but, 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 but like you say, after a while, you get busy and you don't you don't have time to think about it. But I think that's the key, isn't it? Keep busy <laughs> and don't yeah. let don't let it get, don't let it in. Don't let this shit in.
2: I think it's the key for some people. I think people are just wired differently. So some people like doing nothing and relaxing I, i've just never understood that i'm the kind of person that would go down to the beach with my with my with my family and just get bored within the first 10 minutes like what's mm. the what's the point of this like why would i want yeah. to lie down and look at some sand in the sea i want to do something i want to be stimulated but <laughs> um you know other people uh don't share that kind of viewpoint so yeah i think we're all different
1: really? yeah uh, We well, yeah this is it i mean I yeah i don't mind doing that for a day uh, two days at a push on a holiday and then i'm like right okay we've done this now let's go and do something yeah yeah i'm the same i can't well my dad always says you just just, like i'll I'll come into the room but i won't sit down i'll be stood by the tele i'll be stood by the door but watching the television and he's like just sit down what are you doing i'm like i'm always ready to go and it yeah i don't don't know what that is it's just i always always need to be doing something but um uh, but have you have you had anything, with, again, with the lockdown, have you had to deal with anybody that's been severely affected by it?
2: Um, so, yes, kind of. So I um, for the first couple of months when the restrictions first started, I had a massive decrease in my caseload. Um, and it, it kind of picked up, I think, because it took a while for the courts to get used to um, and the prisons to get used to video conferencing and stuff. But for a couple of months, I joined this voluntary organisation called Frontline 19, Um, And it was like, it was run by psychologists. Um, I'm a psychiatrist, but it was run by them and they were giving like therapy to people who were frontline NHS workers who were really struggling. But for people who went beyond that and who were like suicidal or semi-suicidal, they would escalate the cases to me. uh, And I would like assess that person remotely. Um, And it it was kind of a weird thing because I wanted to help. Obviously that's why I signed up, but I felt quite sort of flaccid because I had no jurisdiction over the patients. I wasn't officially their psychiatrist. I didn't I didn't work for their community mental health team. and The mental health services are very territorial in this country. It's very weird. Like if somebody's in your borough in your area, you own them and everybody else can uh, has to kind of mind their own business. So what I was doing was sort of writing up these assessments uh, in detail and sending out these reports to other psychiatrists kind of politely saying, "Look, I don't want to step on your toes but I think this person mm. is you know at, at quite high risk and these are the reasons these are the factors this is what's changed in his life this is what his mental state is like um, and I have to say the response wasn't great I think most most of my peers were politely kind of mind your own business this is our patient not yours um, oh wow and I, I don't know I've got mixed feelings about that because obviously I'm trying to help They've got. I've got no agenda yeah. I'm getting paid for anything but at the same time I could probably understand that if I had a caseload and some guy that I'd never heard of uh, sent me a letter saying, you know, you're not doing your job properly. Basically, yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, you, you a bit oh yeah. Um, when you put so it like that,
2: <laughs> it, was a, <laughs> it was a weird one. It was strange.
1: Yeah, it must have been. I, I mean, I only I don't know anybody that was a frontline worker. Not really. Um, it must have been. It must have been so intense for a lot of them. And it was the. And again, it was the it's it comes down to the lack of funding and the and not having the right they didn't have enough ppe um you know yeah it was i don't know how i don't know how these people got through it it was you know it was it was incredible wasn't it that yeah just yeah cuz nobody knew what they were doing it kind of came out of nowhere didn't it and and so to suddenly be thrust into this right you've got to deal with this which could potentially kill you of course, yeah. you'd be you'd be on edge.
2: Yeah, this is a, sort of a, a random side story, but I remember. Do you remember the clapping thing every it was every yeah. Thursday? We had to <laughs> yeah. go outside and clap. I, mean, I fucking hated that. I was uh, oh, I was the only per- I'm the only, only person on my road that works through the NHS, and I I fully admit I'm not frontline. I, I work in courts assessing defendants. I'm mm. not out there saving lives during COVID. I wasn't, but I still felt like um, it was just really patronising. I just felt like I yeah. had to be seen to go outside and clap even though i couldn't give a shit about people clapping for me um, because what what is that do you know what is what is clapping how does that change anything or else doesn't
1: anything? do any, i I, um, I know we yeah it doesn't it doesn't change anything and there might have been people that have been working nights nhs workers and you're outside banging pots while they're trying to get some kip you know it it was i am like is that the best we can do and every and, it, and everybody was like yeah we we've, we've done our bit now we've clapped <laughs> you know like what well, <laughs> What the fuck are we doing? This is ridiculous. <laughs> we should all be actually getting together. And go right. What actually can we do? Can we? Is there a way yeah. we can do something that's actually going to make a difference? Clapping on your balcony with a couple of pots in your hand. And I didn't I want
2: to, lie. but I f- kind of felt like I had to because I didn't want to be like you had to. The only oh man, yeah, you
1: get. get. <laughs> <laughs> oh, number six aren't coming out, right? What's wrong with them then? You know, <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: they
1: it better was, be it, dead. It they was better
2: was, have COVID. <laughs>
1: It was the only way you could get out of it, is if you you'd suffered with it. Yes, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I I worry. I do worry that the government aren't not with not with COVID, but with just with actually taking care of people that need that desperately need help. They just aren't. They just aren't. They're not focusing on it, are they? They just. They just. I don't know, man. It, it, It worries me. You know yeah and it you know and, and suicide you know the numbers for suicide are ridiculous and you know and i yeah. think we need to start talking about that a bit more the fact that because straight away they go oh, are you having suicidal thoughts oh then like the, the, i don't know many people that haven't had suicidal thoughts <laughs> not they haven't <laughs> yeah. got they haven't done it but they've gone oh fuck this i'm just gonna go i don't yeah. know many people that haven't had that you know i don't know if yeah. it's different for you but i know i went through it i'm like and have you have you have you experienced that yourself or
2: um no i've never had suicidal thoughts i've definitely had times where i felt low mm. um i think that um yes but towards the beginning of the COVID restrictions i i when i wasn't busy i definitely just i just felt really uncomfortable um i surprised myself at how how sort of moody i'd become with not having with just not being kept busy mm. um but no, I've not had suicidal thoughts. I, I deal with, with patients with that kind of thing all, um, yeah. all the time. Um, and I think the thing is, is that when people talk about it, they say you should get help, which absolutely you should. But also getting help isn't the end of the problem. So it's not like somebody hides suicidal thoughts, then one day has the bravery to accept them, then goes and sees a doctor and that's it. They get cured and they go away. That's not how it works at all. No. Um, you, you you know, You might get treatment and you might for example take antidepressants you might start uh, you might have therapy and all those things can help but they're all very very gradual kind of slow um slow burning kinds of treatment or if you're extremely suicidal you might go to an inpatient hospital you might be observed but that's not actually really changing your life that's just keeping you safe in the short term and don't get me wrong I'm not saying that people shouldn't do those things they absolutely should do those things but I I just think that our narrative of suicide is a bit simplistic I think that when somebody's got really deep-rooted problems, then it's not something that's going to be fixed within a couple of weeks or months. It's just uh, yeah. it's a deeper than that. I think.
1: Well, like you and like I mean, I said you know I've had suicidal
2: thoughts and,
1: it and but it, I've I've spoken to somebody else about this and it, and they were saying to me that it's not you don't really want a lot of people don't really want to kill themselves. They just want the hurt to stop. They want yeah. that. They want that. They want they this, well, They want to just 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 the frustration to go and the. And so you get that you get confused you're like, I just you don't really understand the magnitude of suicide. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You kind of like you know you're like, I just want to, I'm just going to go. But you don't really want to. You just want that shit to stop. And like,
2: having the thought is is a big difference from actually going through with it. I mean, yeah actually doing something about it's a huge huge step. So do you mind telling me a bit about your what was going on with the suicidal thoughts? What was your kind of situation just, at the
1: time? I think it was just in like my partner and I now we just we were just we were just at each other the whole time it was just before, it was before lockdown and we just yeah. uh, we just kept fighting but really epic fights and i just yeah. i just and i just walked out and i'm like because i thought this was the one i thought this was the this was going to be the relationship that i was i'd been chasing all this time and then yeah. this was going to down the shitter and i just i remember walking out up by south end pier and i'm just like i'm, I'm just going to do it fuck it i'm just going to do it I've just, I've had enough. No one gives a shit. i would just be, maybe it'd be better if I just wasn't here. I just seem to be getting in everybody's way. Yeah. And then in the argument, I just smashed my phone. And then I just went, oh, I better sort my phone out. <laughs> and then I went, I got a three-year contract. So I'm like, well, I'm, I'm, obviously, <laughs> not gonna, I'm obviously not going to do it. So That's a protective you know, factor
2: right there, isn't it? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Like it matters. Like it matters if, like, if I've got a contract <laughs> or not. But that was my thinking. I'm like, oh, I better go and sort my phone out. Uh, but but some people don't have that. Some people I do. I know of someone who who actually did it. He actually did, it, and but nobody saw it coming. That's the thing, isn't it? No one really? sees it coming. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. did. He, um, he was a, a boxing. Uh, he was in the boxing world. Uh, Dean Powell. Um, unfortunately, he took his life a couple of years ago, and it was such a shock. Because no one saw it yeah. coming. Every time he was out, he was he was this this lovely guy. I remember sitting and talking to him about how best to look after your shoes, you know, like polish them and do this and do that. And then I, I remember I was on holiday and I, and I just saw they were talking about him. I'm like, what's going on here? And then, yeah, he 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 just decided it was it was all too much. But no, but nobody knew. That's the thing. Yeah,
2: really? yeah, yeah. So he, so assessing you know. assessing suicide risk is is quite a common. Um, kind of area in psychiatry obviously yeah. so uh, not so much of a criminal work but I also do civil court cases so I occasionally do clinical negligence cases where um, somebody's committed suicide and their family is trying to sue the mental health team that were looking after them either in the community or occasionally they actually commit suicide while they're in a psychiatric hospital um, And oh, I do I do kind of assessments on, on both sides for the for the the claimant so the family or the defendant which is the NHS trust and it is um it's really variable so like your your friend dean uh, there are certainly a cohort where that you just absolutely don't see it coming I and mean, there's like demographic things so if you're if you're male if you're middle-aged if you're an alcoholic if you've got a mental illness if you've just been through a divorce um, if you've got mental illness with a fa- within a family those are kind of historic factors that you can't change um but when you actually get people that present to psychiatric services it's really it's really confusing because you get some people women especially who can deliberately self-harm or take overdoses repeatedly and they can do it for years and they you never really know whether they intended to to end their lives or not because not every mm. suicide attempt is is an actual real attempt sometimes it's a call for help and there are some mm. factors like for example did they call the ambulance themselves did they take all the tablets that were available did they take out a three-year phone contract before they did it um but <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. It, it's just so complicated and some of the cases you just cannot predict it and some of the cases that I've done with clinical negligence, I'm just sitting there and I read through the notes and I'm just like, how can the mental health team have not picked up on this? It was so obvious that they were just deteriorating like their mm. frequency of telephone calls, the frequency of crisis, the frequency of cutting themselves had clearly increased plus they had this conversation with their family member that you knew about saying goodbye to their kids or something like that and it's just the signs are just glaringly obvious to me. And it's just, I kind of cringe when I read through this material. Um, mm. obviously I know the final outcome and yeah, some of it is indefensible.
1: Yeah, right. And do you think it's just comes down to them being under underfunded? Uh, this is, they've got too much going on. <laughs> um,
2: I, I think, I think it's two things. I think that it is that their caseloads are too high and they're overworked, um, especially community mental health teams. But the other thing is that it, it kind of it shocks me how bad some risk assessments are done and just to be clear I'm not talking about all members of staff by any means I'm talking about no, no, no. the occasional few that, that come across my threshold that come onto my desk but they will so their attempt at a risk assessment is are you going to kill yourself do you have thoughts of suicide yes or no and that's it oh, wow! and that's just that's just bullshit that's no, not you don't really. That's the, not yeah, assessment that's... Yeah, exactly exactly so they're, they've not um, so say for example somebody's had a suicide attempt a few days ago if you're doing a proper assessment, if you want to know whether somebody's likely to kill themselves, you need to get to the root of exactly what went on. So what, were, what, was, what, was, what was happening on the day that they, that they had their suicide attempt a week ago? What were the factors? Who do they argue with? Um, what kind of closure did they get? Who did they speak to about what? Um, and did they kind of indicate that they actually wanted to end their lives? Um, what made them change their mind is a, is a huge, huge question to ask, and it very rarely does get asked. So if there was an external factor which is now gone, then the chances are they're going to be safe. But if there's an external factor that's still very much in the, in the background, then they're not going to be safe. Uh, so it's not, it's not that complicated to do, really. It just takes a bit of time and a bit of effort. Um, but I yeah. see these risk assessments and it is, they're just, they, just, they look like somebody's just done it as an afterthought because they've run out of time rather than an actual method to stop somebody. Yeah,
1: yeah, them. yeah. What would you, what would what would you say to someone if they were thinking these things?
2: I would absolutely suggest that they that they seek adv- that, that they seek help. So I think that to get help immediately, the best ports of calls are um, are the Samaritans. I think they're really uh, well established. Mm. They have proper trained people who can really sort of listen to your to your thoughts and concerns. I think that you need to accept and acknowledge that it is a long road to get better. It's not simple. Um, even engaging with the services might be fairly difficult it might take weeks but there is help out there and people do get better like i've I've seen dozens of cases of people who who had very serious suicide attempts and have turned their life around so if it can happen to somebody else then potentially it can happen to you as well it does happen people's Mm. mental states do change people do get better Uh, depression does go into relapse and remissions over time Uh, so just because you're feeling one way now that's not the be all and end all doesn't mean you're going to feel like this forever
1: yeah, and I think that's it. That's the that's the key, isn't it? It's that because when you are in the depths of despair, you just don't see that there is a way out. You just don't feel that th- this is this is how it's always going to be, and it's a yeah. it's yeah, and you don't feel. And then there's a thing where you don't feel like you can reach out. You know, you think, oh, everyone's too busy. Everyone's too busy. They don't want to listen yeah. to this. You know, and I've, I, I say this a lot on here. Just 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 message someone and just say. How you doing? Look, I'm, you know, I'm feeling this way, and most people would, will, will, you know, will we'll talk to you, you know. Don't ever feel yeah. that people are too busy. I think that's the key, isn't it?
2: And also that it's more common than you think. Um, you know, yes, it's as you said yourself, people have suicidal thoughts. It's not that big a deal. It's not as, it's not that rare actually.
1: No, don't feel. Yeah, exactly. Don't feel that you're weird because you're having these thoughts. Because, like you said, loads of people have these thoughts. Um, yeah. I re I I really find people fascinating, and I love, like I said, I loved, I love just I love watching and sitting with people, and just trying to work out what they what they are who they are and what they're about. I find that fascinating. Yeah. And do you, do you think you're good at it?
2: Can you can you read people? Uh, yes.
1: I, well, I think I can. Uh, I like to think I can, but I'm probably I don't know. I just I I I think I like. Yeah, I think I can, I I can I can I can work people out based on the other not just what they're saying, what they're just how they are, and I quite I get a buzz off of that. But yeah, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm not. I wouldn't. There's no way I would. You know, I'll probably get it wrong. <laughs> I get it wrong a lot, um, <laughs> but I do find it fascinating. But you're, so are you? Um, so you've got a podcast out, that's just started, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right, so yes. it's uh, it's very new. I've only got um, four episodes out so far. Um, I just think that I've got a lot of interesting cases and I think that um, all the backstories of most of the patients I see are, are fascinating and I think that there's, there's a space to, uh, for people to hear about that. I've kind of, I've looked into some other mental health podcasts and blogs and there are quite a few around and I, I've found a lot of them to be quite dry. a bit serious so they're they're Mm. they're kind of about studies or going through diagnoses in in like uh, in in loads of detail so i wanted to do something that's a bit different and i think my usp is just talking through my cases so most of them are criminal cases about how specific symptoms have led to specific kind of uh, offenses Uh, and some of them about the the civil stuff like suicide as well
1: i think that's what it needs when i was looking at your stuff you speak in a way your your whole demeanor and way is is is, you're a you're you know you're obviously a very intelligent man but you're not you're just you sound like an everyday dude like your language as well and that i think that's what people need that's how people that's how you'll get to people is by like with this podcast if and jeff and i say all manner of stuff but and I'm not an expert by any way, of course, in any way, shape, or form. But I just want to talk about it and have people on that I'm learning from, and then people listening yeah. will go, oh, "Okay, yeah, that's interesting." And that's how that's how you help people by by just being like you, like you. You're just an every you come across as an everyday kind of guy. Well, thank you. And I think that's so much better than just sitting there, you know, reading off case notes and and you know, to, it, it, being all sort of like Radio Four. No disrespect to Radio Four, but you know it's, it gets a bit—it's a bit fucking yeah. dry sometimes. You know, and that—you know—that's—you know—that's you
2: know, your right. You your way. Thank you. That's nice of you to say. i i, I don't. I'm a psychiatrist, but I don't think a, i don't think that defines who I am. I'm—I'm I'm a man who does many things. One of those is psychiatry. Whereas I think a lot of my peers—that's all they do and that's all they want to do. Um, so you know, in their spare time, they're kind of writing papers or doing research, which is good. I'm not. Dissing those guys, but it's it's never me. It's just it's just one thing that I do. It's not it's not
1: who I am. Yeah, you're too busy doing everything else. I was <laughs> looking you up and like, is there nothing this man doesn't do? I mean, even like, what was it? Rap? You've been doing rap battles, is it?
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I did a, I did a, a rap battle once on a uh, on a TV show against another doctor. Yeah, that was terrifying. <laughs> it was so so scary. I bet
1: it was. Did you did you speak to each other before beforehand?
2: Yeah, we met. Uh, Chima was the name of the other guy's GP. Yeah, he's a cool guy. We we met each other on the day, uh, so they went. Well, it was all there really early, but we weren't actually recording till the afternoon. So we just sort of hung out um, afterwards. Uh, beforehand, practiced a little bit, so we knew each other's verses. We practiced a couple of times, yeah. and then did the show, and then just went out for went out on the piss afterwards. Actually, so ended up drinking until nice. like three or four in the morning. So yeah, it was all good. No, there was no see, bad blood.
1: See, see, it's, it's, it's shit like that like you do what you do you're a criminal psychiatrist but then you'll get on the last till 4am <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's what i like about you you're you're a real person and that's fucking brilliant and that's what's needed that's what's needed for, to, to aid people with their mental health not this stiff and starchy bollocks we need you getting on the last till 4am and then going into the office <laughs> hung just in case my but bosses did- are listening
2: that was that was a one-off that was a one-off <laughs>
1: I and I and I'd just like to say I said that. He didn't say that. Um This is just me being a comedian taking the piss. Um you're but you did you've done comedy as well, haven't you? You've done some gigs.
2: Yeah. Yeah, man. So I, I was I was only ever an open micro, I was never uh, never a, uh, an experienced comedian by any means. But I did I did about 40 gigs i think over the space of about five that's months still, a couple of years ago that's still that's and still a lot of gigs man i have to say i found i found my my brief stint in comedy way harder than forensic psychiatry way harder um i really I take my hats off to to such as yourself yeah absolutely but you at least you um, made that
1: step there was you know so many people are like oh, i'd love to do that but the hardest bit is making that step onto the stage once you overcome that, once you go, once you've yeah, done-
2: I mean, like I, I think the writing, writing jokes and shaping jokes obviously is, a, is an is an art form, mm. is a craft that needs to be done well, and having the balls to get up on stage also uh, are huge factors. But for me, the reason that I found it so hard was um, just the fact that it's it's so, first of all it's really competitive and time consuming. So I'm I'm sure you can relate to your sort of early, early days when you first started, there's so many open no, rikers, for sure, uh, especially yes. in London. So I'd go to gigs when they were like, you know, the gigs were like three, four hours long. So I'd leave my house at six, at six in the evening, come home at midnight. And I, you know, for five minutes stage time. And on top of that, half the time there was no audience or there was like two people in the audience, um, which would just be crushing because, because I'd spend, you know, hours writing all these new jokes, memorizing them. And then you just get to a gig and there's nobody there. Oh, um, I just couldn't do yeah. it. Like,
1: Oh, man. You are up doing it. Yeah, you're doing it to the tops of other comedians' heads because they're writing their notes and there's nobody else in the room. And you just got to... Yeah, it, if you could get past that, you'll, you'll probably be all right in the comedy world. But it's just trying to break through what, that.
2: What you mean, the open mic stages, you mean?
1: Yeah, yeah. You've really got to want to do it. And re- I just yeah. was so determined to, to do it. I really wanted to do it, be a comedian and yeah yeah there's a- that's got to be a mental- Ill, a mental illness as well, isn't it <laughs> <laughs> that's
2: narcissistic personality disorder really. yeah
1: <laughs> I just you know what though i don't I, yeah, yeah, there must be an element of that in there. I just love making people laugh, that's why I do it I just love yeah I love that i i I don't feel there's a separation between me and the audience. I still feel like a punter. So I don't, yeah. I don't walk on thinking I've got the higher status. I'm kind of like, let's have a laugh. Come on, all of us together. Let's do this. That's how I feel. Yeah. And it, you know, and, it, and it, I, I just love doing it. So, for, and, and well, if anyone listening, if you're thinking I'd love to give it a bash, go and give it a bash. Go and go and go and find <laughs> an. A, 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 I mean, you, you might say no, but anyone, just go and <laughs> you, you, you don't just sit there thinking I'd love to. I don't. Oh, I'm a bit scared. Go and do it. You never know what'll happen. I reckon. Do you, think, do you think you'll go back and do it again? Or is that it you've, you've,
2: um, I, 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 the problem with me is I started too late. So I was, thir- it was about two, three years ago. So I was 38 when I started and it's not, oh, it's right. not the age thing. It's, it's the fact that I had so many other commitments, like trying to do that plus my job, plus my wife and two kids, plus, you know, like I exercise every day and things like that. Yeah. I just, I just, I, it, for the six hours or five or six hours that I was given away uh, two or three times a night, it wasn't enough for me just how, just five minutes of stage time and uh, i don't know if you can relate to this but the, just the non-linear kind of progress of knowing where the jokes work or not so jokes mm. that did work on some days wouldn't work on other days and it really pissed me off because I, like, I thought i thought i had this <laughs> like i thought this is a funny joke yeah. so what does that mean do i have to rewrite my whole thing now uh, and vice versa jokes that didn't work some days they would they were killed on other nights and i just I I didn't like the lack of control either. Either I write a joke and it's funny, and you tell me it's funny, or it's not funny, and I will cut it out. But you, you're not allowed to laugh sometimes and not other times because. And that's it's, it's it. Just, uh,
1: because yeah. different people react differently. Like I had a gig last night, and I even said to them, I said, "You're laughing at the bits where you don't people don't normally laugh." Like they were laughing at the setups. And then yeah. I drop a punchline, and they were going, "Nah, okay." Go, How can you not laugh at the beat you're supposed to laugh at? And it was really, I just, I, yeah, it was. I find it, I like, I like it. I like the not knowing and the, 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 the way that. Uh, what, what I find fascinating is when a whole group of strangers in one room can all decide as one that they don't like you. Yeah. That I find fascinating. Just that when you bomb at a gig, and they just go, everybody, complete strangers, and they go, "Nah, not tonight." That I find fascinating.
2: The other thing that really hurt when I did when I did stand up was was bombing. So like the 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 joy that I'd feel of a gig going well, and I had I had a few like a handful of very good gigs, was nowhere near the kind of self loathing and just frustration that I'd feel when I had a bad gig. Um, You know, I think what especially once you get over the fear and the novelty, uh, you just it frustrates you if you've had a few good gigs in a row and then one goes badly.
1: Oh, God, yeah. Do you, do you still yeah, feel that yeah. now? Yep. And I and it's always when I'm furthest away from home that I have a shit gig. So I've got all that time in the car coming back to assess <laughs> and, and beat myself yeah. up and tell myself that I'm shit and I should quit and I should do this, that and the other. But I tell you, where were you based, may I ask? Uh,
2: North London, Enfield.
1: North London. Right. Because we are we're gonna we're gonna we've done a few live ones of these and we we do them around about the place. How would you feel about coming back on and being a guest on a live one?
2: Uh, as as a up or as a psychiatrist? Just
1: as a psychiatrist, but because you've got you've already got the <laughs> yeah. you've already got the the stagecraft. You've already done it, so I think you'd make for a cracking yeah. live guest. I think we should. Yeah. I think we should do it. Yeah, would you up for that?
2: Mate, I'd definitely be up for that, yeah. Yes. That'd be wicked. Right,
1: let's do it. Okay, we'll do that. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can we find you online? Uh,
2: so you can check out my uh, my new podcast. It's called A Psych for Sore Minds. Excellent name. Uh, or you can hit me up on Twitter. Um, I can't actually remember my Twitter handle. I think it's at dr, <laughs> for do, as in doctor, underscore, S underscore, Das.
1: Excellent, excellent. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, And I'll be in touch. I'm definitely going to get you on for a live one. It'll be fascinating. Cool, man. I'm definitely up for that.
0: Definitely up for that. Produced by Paul Daniels at pauldaniels.tv. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.